This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexipol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you're well, and I hope you're watching us on YouTube as well, so you can take a look at my mug and our guests. And we have a great guest for you today. So check us out on the YouTube channel. Hey, let's talk about policing gun violence. Our guest today is Dr. Philip Cook, a criminologist and researcher who has co-authored the book with Anthony Braga, renowned researcher and co-author of the Boston Gun Project and Operation Ceasefire. The book, and I have it, thank you so much, Dr. Cook, is Policing Gun Violence. And it is a great read. Uh, It talks about policing strategies based on data and research, how much they are needed now, perhaps now more than ever, to present strategies based on research without bias in order to deflect criticisms of race, economics, and other biases. Well, we'll discuss gun violence, gang influences, strengthening firearms investigations, and the need to continue with effective strategies and programs to reduce gun violence and hold offenders accountable. Wow, that's refreshing, isn't it? Well, Philip J. Cook has been a member of the Duke University for 50 years and is currently Professor Emeritus of Public Policy and Economics. He's one of the first scholars to undertake research on gun violence prevention. In his 2020 contributions in this area, they were recognized by the award of the Stockholm Prize in Criminology. Earlier in 2001, he was elected to membership in the National Academy of Medicine. His most recent book with Anthony Braga is Policing Gun Violence. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Dr. Philip Cook. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with you and to have a chance to talk to your audience. Well, thank you. It was so great reading through the Policing Gun Violence book. And also we've attached in our show notes, your article in Vital City that talks about the vital role of police and gun violence prevention. Uh, what was your intent on taking on this challenge to write this book? Let me just start by saying the obvious, which is that gun violence is a very important problem uh, in most of our cities and, and even suburban and rural areas, I think it's fair to say that it is uh, the most important single crime problem that we have. It destroys individual lives. It, it certainly uh, returns, reduces the quality of, of, of life in heavily impacted neighborhoods. It traumatizes children growing up in those neighborhoods so they can never uh, realize their full potential. Uh, it generally reduces the quality of life and, and it uh, deserves our highest priority and, and the highest priority for the resources that we have to confront it and combat it. Uh, I should say that um, the focus of this particular book is on what um, sadly might be called routine gun violence. We, we don't do so much uh, with the more attention-grabbing uh, 
um, mass shootings or, or with political violence, not because we don't think that they're important, but the, to some extent, it's a separate discussion. Um, everything I, I think that we might be concerned about when it comes to gun violence got that much more intense in 2020, uh, that we had a 30%, 34% increase nationwide in, in gun homicide uh, during that year. Uh, and we're back in practically the bad old days of the crack era uh, of uh, 1990 around there in, in a number of cities. Um, all right, so saying that the intent now in writing the book uh, was partly um, a kind of a push and a pull. Uh, I, I think that the push came from our frustration in hearing so many learned discussions of gun violence uh, prevention that didn't even mention the police or, or that treated the police as part of the problem rather than part of the solution along the way. And, and I think we felt that that was a grave omission indeed, that in fact, they are our vital asset uh, as first responders and, and in doing justice, but also in prevention uh, in this area. So we wanted to redress that um, gap, I think, in, in the public discussion about this problem. Um, and that is all the more motivating because some of the other approaches to gun violence prevention uh, are looking less uh, attractive, um, starting with uh, gun control uh, and, and the possibility of keeping guns out of the hands of, of violent people. And I, I think given the current very radical Supreme Court uh, decisions that we have in this area, that that's a, a dwindling prospect about what legislation can do, what regulation can do, because uh, of the claim by the court that the Constitution greatly limits government action in, in that area. Uh, of course, the politics uh, also around uh, gun control is, is intense. And, and so uh, I think that with that, us increasingly sidelined and um, the obvious point that, well, we, we need to address the root causes of violence, that's a generational matter and, and the problem is right now. I, I think what we're left with is looking for what are, uh, as I say, our, our primary prevention agent in this area is, and, and that's the police. Now, the, the pull in this area was really uh, the belief that the science of, of policing has advanced over recent years and, and that we did have something as scholars uh, to say in that area. Uh, so, of course, the goal is to uh, make policing uh, more effective and, and more responsive to community needs. Uh, and I, I think that uh, the research base for doing just that has expanded and it's something that we try to capture in the book. Yeah, and it, it is so it important is. that you bring up the idea of police as being part of the answer to the, the problem. And I don't know how we can remove politics from 
all of the issues concerning firearms, shootings, homicides, but we've got to at some point. Um, you mentioned gun control, and I just heard about a million clicks of people saying, oh, gun control, right? And uh, we have politicians who, who see gun control as the only answer. And of course, we have the Second Amendment and gun protection rights. And uh, you, I love the distinction that you make between shootings in our cities, uh, shootings and homicides, and taking those and separating them from mass shootings or, or uh, active shooter situations, because those are so much more prevalent, right? The, the routine shootings, as you called them. And so how do you take the politics out of the issue? I know you use a lot of data. Um, you talk about programs that have worked. Uh, uh, Dr. Braga talks about uh, his Operation Ceasefire and how that was a multidisciplinary operation. How'd you take politics out of this? I mean, our claim uh, that anybody should listen to what we have to say is really uh, based on the idea that we are doing science and, and that we have something to say. As, as scientists, that uh, um, is objective and, and not uh, simply reflecting a particular ideology. Um, I should say, though, we we are not interested in avoiding controversial topics, and and in fact, there are none in, in this area. Uh, certainly, the regulation of uh, guns, the gun control, is is maybe the most intensely political. But, uh, and, and I, I would have said a, a few years ago that there's more of a consensus around policing, but that was before we had the defund the police movement and, and uh, the attack from the far left uh, on the police. Um, meanwhile, I, I guess there is also an attack from the far right that's taking the form of encouraging vigilante action is basically what it amounts to and everybody should have their own gun and take care of business uh, you can't rely on, on the authorities and so uh, nonetheless uh, I, I feel that when it comes to conversations about effective policing uh, policing that's responsive to the community that that is something that I can have a conversation with all kinds of people about, and usually it goes okay. <laughs> so uh, that's that's where we are. Um, some some claim to science, but but sure, we're stepping in it uh, to some extent, and we understand that. Uh, that's just the world we live in. Yep, and we need context when we look at the data. We look at data that comes from. The Department of Justice, the FBI, UCR used to be pretty reliable. Uh, 18,000 law enforcement agencies submitted data regularly. There was a switch to NIBRS, the National Incident-Based Reporting System in 2020. It was supposed to happen. And uh, I think to date, we're only averaging about 60,000 or 6,000 of the 18,000 agencies submitting data. How did you get around uh, the data issues, would you use as your sources? Yeah, I mean, first of all, let, let me just join the chorus that when the FBI ended summary reporting in the UCR, it was a disaster. And, and uh, I hope either that they restore it or, or that we find a workaround in, in that area. Um, but, you know, I think that 
there's two answers. Um, one is that where the police data, for whatever reason, fall short, there is another source of data when it comes to gun violence, and, and that's medical data. Uh, so to some extent, um, both Anthony and I in our research have used medical data on gunshot injuries and on and and uh, and of course the vital statistics provide excellent uh, data on on deaths and on homicides suicides and, and accidents um that has been further refined by the um, national violent death reporting system uh, that that some of your listeners may be familiar with it's now operating in every state in the country and it uh, provides a detailed account of, of every violent death. And that's being supplemented in turn by some private sources. So I think that uh, we, we have very good data um, at, in some respects. Um, it, it is a shame about the Uniform Crime Reports, but that hasn't hampered the work that we've been doing. And by the way, a, a lot of what we've done over the years has focused on a specific city. And so we're not relying on the UCR. We're, we're taking data directly from the uh, whatever the uh, records management system is for the police department that we're working with, be it Durham, North Carolina, or, or Boston, or or um, a lot of work that I've done in Chicago with Anthony's work in other cities, including Oakland. So, um, and what we found uh, by and large is that those data systems are excellent. And we, we, you know, the trick is to arrange the MOU so that we can actually access the data, but once we can, we can, we can go to town with it. Great. In your article and your book, both talk about response uh, and the involvement of law enforcement. Did any of the research lead to a different prevention strategy? Um, I, I think the place we wanted to start in the discussion of prevention was to restore the police work to its proper place in the discussion of prevention. I mean, I, I think that since the, at least the time of Sir Robert Peel, the uh, first and best goal of policing is preventing crime and creating public safety. Uh, so it's uh, the characterization we often hear of the police as being, you know, only responsible for cleaning up afterwards uh, is uh, dead wrong, so to speak. I mean, I, I think that there is every reason to think that even in the most fundamental uh, job that the police are uh, responsible for, which is to identify perpetrators, to arrest them, to build cases against them, that that's not just about doing justice, as important as that is, but it's also to prevent future crime because those people are often repeat criminals uh, that if they're left at large, they'll continue uh, causing trouble. And on the other side of it is, is uh, deterrence that if there's, certainly if there's no chance that 
shooting someone will, will bring legal consequences, it's going to be more attractive for a lot of people to do just that. And it helps um, by doing justice to interrupt some cycles of violence and vendettas that might otherwise occur. Uh, so that we, we hear a lot about violence interrupters, meaning private groups that are, are working in the community, but the best violence interruption is to arrest and, and imprison the shooter. And that, uh, I think, forestalls uh, the likelihood of uh, subsequent activities. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that because incapacitation, uh, what better way to keep a shooter off the street than keep them in jail if they need be? And, and we talk about chronic offenders, right? And we we talk about gun violence and any elected official will tell you guns are bad. But then we we tend to lose our integrity when it comes to prosecution of repeat gun offenders. Um, and so we get we get stuck in that dichotomy of the Second Amendment and then gun control. But in, in actuality, aren't repeat offenders responsible for much of the violence in cities like Oakland and Chicago? Yeah, absolutely. That that uh, most of those who uh, end up as uh, identified as the shooter have a substantial criminal record that often uh, there is every reason to believe that this would not be the last time they misused a gun if they were uh, left free. And so that that very simple idea that if you can uh, lock them up for a few years and, uh, and, and give them a chance to age out of that uh, period in, in their lives, that that would be uh, a real contribution to public safety and certainly important to prevention. But I think it's also just, you know, getting the message out that if you shoot someone, there's going to be consequence. And, you know, the the probabilities, the objective probabilities in the cities that I've worked in can be very low indeed. I, the, it went as low as 5% in Chicago in 2016 for non-fatal shootings. Uh, Durham was not doing much better than, uh, and so on. So what we're talking about is um, if you're inclined to get in a car for uh, with your buddies for a drive-by shooting, one thing you don't have to worry about is getting arrested and, and put in prison in, in many cities. Um, and I think that's a proposition that we need to change. We have to find ways that will make that better. There's a lot of other preventive activities that the police are, are engaged in. Um, and, you know, certainly directed patrol and, and uh, working in hotspots, doing the problem solving that they need to do. Um, but I, I don't want to sideline the, the very basic task of uh, arrest and prosecution. Uh, and what I've found is, I mean, Durham, um, for example, has a, a, um, a district attorney who, who is uh, styles herself as progressive. And certainly in many respects, uh, she's going by the progressive playbook. But she is the first to say that she's very concerned about gun violence and, and that there she wants to do what she can to identify the dangerous people and, and lock them up. So uh, here maybe is 
a, a way to get a, a break from the usual left-right uh, kind of arguments in, in, along the way. Um, I'm, I'm not too confident of that, but <laughs> I would say that there begins to be. Right. And I mean, you know, we talk about data, we talk about, you know, thousands of shootings, hundreds of homicides, and sometimes we lose that chronic offender in the numbers. And if we look at individual cases, and and right here in the San Francisco Bay Area, not San Francisco, but across the Bay, we've had uh, a prosecutor who uh, attempted to make a plea deal with someone who's in custody for three separate homicides, including one of a witness. And the offer was, I think, 15 years for the combined three murders. And uh, thankfully, the judge uh, reviewing the plea deal would not accept it, sent it back and said, no, we're not essentially giving a professional killer uh, a way out. And he had already done you know, credit for time served, so probably be out in a few years. And then uh, right after that, two of the three cases were just dropped from prosecution. So, I mean, that's what we're dealing with. And I want to take a, a quick break, but then I want to ask you, uh, as far as gang violence and prosecutions, how do we commit to saying that uh, we're going to take politics out of these prosecutions? If you carry a gun, if you if you if we have the evidence to say we're going to prosecute you for murder. And we're going to go the full extent of the law. Because as you just pointed out, if we all jump in a car and say, let's go do some shootings, we know if we do get caught, not much is going to happen. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Dr. Philip Cook, a criminologist and researcher who has co-authored the book with Anthony Braga, Policing Gun Violence. And I, I love what I'm reading. Uh, you say random patrols, not that useful, hotspot policing, uh, using data for uh, crime-based violence, um, coupled with some other strategies. And you talk about guns uh, quite a bit in both the article and your book. Did your research lead you to patterns that show who's responsible for the majority of these shootings? I think when people hear gangs, it's another one of those topics that, um, you know, some people will say, yeah, there's violent gangs roaming around out there, uh, organized crime gangs, and then others who are saying, hey, you know, you're labeling our young people. Um, how did you uh, identify uh, who was involved in a gang in a shooting or a homicide? Yeah, I mean, I think the the first answer to the question about who's doing the shooting is that there's a great deal of overlap between the shooters and the victims, and, and that that's something to be kept in mind. We did a survey of um, prisoners in, in Illinois at one point, 
from Chicago who had been involved in gun violence in their day. And we asked them uh, about their personal history. Half of them had been shot at least once. And so this was a group with an incredibly high victimization rate uh, along the way. And I, I think that in terms of age and uh, location, residence, uh, and certainly gender, it's all about the guys, uh, that there's a lot of, lot of overlap. Um, maybe the shooters tend to be a little younger than the victims sometimes, and there, there's some other things, but that, that's the basic picture. Um, yeah, and then the, the harder to measure and identify aspects of, you know, prior criminal record of, of gang involvement or involvement in, in some kind of a, a criminally involved group, um, but that too seems to be uh, very predictive of, about what what's going on, and that, uh, of course, is important um, for uh, figuring out where to to focus the police effort to identify um, identify those uh, groups that that are uh, up to no good, even within the a gang that is known for its um, violent activities. There's often some handful of guys that are known as the shooters, you know that. So it 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 can be refined still further and say, yeah, then that's the guy that is capable of pulling the trigger is likely to do it. So that's a, you know a pretty general answer, but I think the main thing is that for for this. Um, particular problem of the routine gun violence, uh, the shooters and the victims have a, a lot of overlap, not all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, previously you, you spoke of vigilantism, but oftentimes in a gang culture, there is uh, some form of their own vigilantism, right? When they feel that they, they know who a shooter is, nobody will tell the police who the shooter is. And so maybe a homicide or a shooting victim uh, case doesn't get prosecuted because there's no evidence, no, no suspect ID, but other gangs know, or they think they know who's responsible. So then retaliation turns out to be essentially their own sense of vigilantism, no? Oh, yeah, sure. You, you nailed it. I, and, you know, one place that shows up that is particularly difficult for law enforcement is that the victims who survive uh, often refuse to cooperate because they fully intend to take care of business on their own. Uh, and so they don't want the police to be messing with it because they have their own plans. And, and so it, it becomes very much as an alternative to um, the police investigation and, and eventually uh, an arrest. Uh, and that, that's an area that we have focused on um, because um, what we found in, in all the cities we've looked at that the arrest rate, the, the conviction rate for fatal shootings is much higher than it is for non-fatal shootings, um, often three to one, four to one in, in terms of the ratio, even though the fatal and non-fatal are, are basically a luck of the draw. It's, it's just, does, does the bullet hit a vital organ or not? And, and that's what it comes down to. Uh, 
but it's the same people, it's the same motives, it's the same circumstances. Uh, and so in that prevention sense, it's just as important to prosecute the non-fatal shooters as it is the fatal shooters. It's the same people. Uh, and the problem is that the victim often gets in the way of doing that in a non-fatal shooting, which is not true in, in a fatal shooting. Now, it's also true that police departments put a higher priority on investigating fatal shootings uh, for understandable reasons, but we're trying to change that. So that would yeah. be part of that. No, absolutely. Except for those uh, message shootings where somebody gets shot in the leg or the butt or something like that. Um, those are maybe a message shooting. Otherwise, a shooting uh, victim could be a shooting victim, uh, but not a homicide just for the sake of the awful marksmanship of the shooter. Yeah, and, and like in Durham, I mean, uh, what, at least half the shooting cases are drive-bys. And, and so, you know, it's all happening at 20 miles an hour or something, and, and it's not uh, likely that there's much marksmanship in, in, involved. There's uh, about five non-fatal shootings for every fatal. So there's a, a lot more business uh, for the police investigators. Uh, but it, as I say, it, it's the same, uh, same folks. Yeah, and we talked about place-based violence. Did your research happen? If you, I, I know that I love the the Boston ceasefire map overlays of where the victim shootings have occurred, and then an overlay of a gang map, and it's almost identical. Did you identify patterns in the different cities where shootings occurred? I mean, there. First of all, it is highly patterned and. Um, concentrated in particular neighborhoods, but more than that, often particular blocks or addresses that, that are associated with high rates of violence. Uh, given the current um, status of, of the record systems that the police maintain everywhere, it's easy to identify those places after the fact. Um, I'd, I want to issue a very small warning on, on that, that gun violence is still a, a rare event and that the, because it's a rare event, you, you can't expect exactly the same thing is going to show up tomorrow that it did yesterday. It, it's it's uh, not that predictable, but it's pretty predictable. Um, and and uh, that's something that should guide police allocation that is where the uh, patrol gets concentrated and, and uh, the, the search for particular problem areas that might be resolved either by the police or by other agencies and um, along the way. That seems to be pretty well established these days in, in police work everywhere. The, the idea of the hotspot, um, I, I think, is very well established. You know, when I started, it was probably being done with pins on a map, but now it's it's being done more um, scientifically, I guess, and with bigger data sets, but it's the same idea. Right. And I mean, we can talk about 40 years ago when Bill Bratton and Jack Maple started those pin maps, right? The crime maps and the hotspot policing. Mostly, I think they started at transit hubs, right? That 
a lot of the crime was occurring on transit hubs. And then, and here we are 40 years later, and we actually see the same patterns of low-level crime to high crimes of violence in these areas. And now we have emerging technology and some not so emerging. ShotSpotter has been around for more than a decade, but still in a place like Chicago with over 700 homicides a year, there's a debate on whether or not they should continue with hotspot uh, with ShotSpotter uh, because of race uh, bias allegations. Um, I mean, the data is there. We have access to this technology, AI, facial recognition, other things. Are we ever going to get past the argument of race bias when it comes to these using these kinds of strategies and tools? Yeah, I mean, sadly, that it's overwhelmingly true in the city of Chicago that gun violence is concentrated in uh, black neighborhoods and uh, low-income black neighborhoods. And if if you have um, a shot spotter installed, then the notifications and and the patrol response is going to be focused on those areas. And so. For better or worse, um, that those neighborhoods will see more police cars with their lights flashing and all, all the rest of it. And of course, some some people resent that. Um, and uh, I think that in Chicago, uh, that was uh, crystallized around the fact that in some cases, the, the police response to a shot spotter notification included. Um, uh, Kind of opportunistic arrests where they they were noticed uh, somebody that um, was in clear violation of the law, but not associated with the shooting, and making an arrest as part of the trip is what it amounts to, and and that intensified the um, political pushback. Uh, the the great conundrum is that. Those neighborhoods, uh, when you talk to even the young men, will say they value the police and they want the police to be effective um, in particular ways. Certainly, they want to feel safe, um, but they feel uh, at the same time over-policed and under-policed. And um, I, th I think that the under-policed is because the, the police have been so unsuccessful in making arrests um on shootings which everybody agrees is a good thing um but then they feel like there's too much uh, uh kind of policing of uh lifestyle crimes and other other things that they would just assume the, the police stay stay away so that's the great challenge i think to get that balance right uh, and to make it work and it's not like there's any magic uh, answer to it, but you work away at it. Oh, for Pete's sake, that was the question. That was my last question. What is the magic answer? What's, <laughs> what's the yeah, silver sorry. bullet? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I, it's really difficult to, to see this cycle of criticism of law enforcement when uh, we talk about things like shot spotter in a neighborhood to catch shootings real time just about when we we get shootings reported that nobody ever calls on a, on a phone to report 
in some cases, right? So police will get there and there's shell casings all over the street or there's even a body and yet nobody's picked up the phone to call 911. And so I really grapple with how somebody could criticize something like ShotSpotter. And then when it comes down to looking at the data and it shows high clearance rates of homicides in white and Asian communities, but very low solvability in black and brown communities. And I think it goes back to, we need people to trust. We go back to Sir Robert Peel, 1822. Trust the police. Prevention is our number one strategy. Work with the community to solve these crimes. And it's not happening. Yeah, that's right. It's a, uh, certainly a vicious cycle that if if they can't, the police can't uh, make a successful investigation in a neighborhood because nobody will cooperate, uh, then that's going to make the relationship with the police that much more difficult because the community might conclude, well, they didn't make the arrest because the police just don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, when in fact the police saying, boy, if the community would step up, we would be able to take care of business. And, and so it, it is really a different perspective. But, um, you know, there are some answers, I, I would say, you know, in whatever years are left in, in my uh, research capacity, I, I really would like to work on this question of um, especially victim cooperation, but but generally the cooperation on, on the part of witnesses and how what we can do to improve that and what we can do when it doesn't uh, exist uh, in, in a usable form. So there's some technological alternatives like ShotSpotter. It, the, the key, like everything else, is, is to do it right. And Durham, I'm doing an evaluation of ShotSpotter in Durham right now. They have just contracted. Uh, it's been in place for six months now uh, in a three square miles. So it's a pilot project. But so far, there doesn't seem to be any real pushback or concern on the part of the community about that. So I, I think that more credit to the police who have been very careful about saying those deployments will not be used as the opportunity for making arrests that are connected you know and it's all going to be about the shooting uh if they can't find anything then go back home and and leave it at that so yep Hey, I want to thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Philip Cook, criminologist and researcher who has co-authored the book with Anthony Braga, Policing Gun Violence. And we've got a link. There it is. I I love it. Uh, I think every cop should read it. I definitely think every command level cop should read it to look at the strategies that might make a dent in the crime and violence in your city. Thanks so much, Dr. Cook. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Jim. I enjoyed talking. Well, great having you. And to our listeners, I hope you found today's show interesting. Check out the show notes. You're going to see a link to the article, maybe a PDF, and a link to the book, Policing Gun Violence, Strategic Reforms for Controlling the Most Pressing Crime Problem. I agree. All right, take good care. Thanks for listening, and hope to talk to you again real soon. Take good care. 
I'm Jim Dudley. <laughs>